I minor in the study of, let's see, I minored in the study of women and men in society at the University of Southern California. And I learned my law degree at American University, Washington College of Law, which is a law school that was founded by women. I studied constitutional law and authored a textbook on four comparative law and social science <clears throat> entitled Social Issues in Global Perspective um, Pornography. It was an examination of, of social attitudes and laws related to sexually explicit materials in different countries around the world. So I, like Dom, was raised in the evangelical church. Um, I now write and speak about the intersection between religion and politics. And I've been doing a lot of work fighting for democracy. And that's why I started the Truth and Democracy Coalition uh, to help build a movement to save democracy. And I, what I wanna do right now is help you to understand the conservative Christian position on abortion and the role of religion in politics, which I've seen a lot in the chat about already. And first, but first I wanna tell you a little bit about myself, but actually quite a bit about myself. Um, and it's, uh, it may take a little bit of time, but it, I think it's worth telling even for the sake of posterity. Um, what I'm gonna be talking about is that when talking about abortion, one should use personal stories. Abortion is a complex issue. Many people are conflicted about it. Even the most ardent pro-lifer has some conflicts about it, um, particularly if it's their daughter or if it's them. So I attended a Braver Angels abortion debate. And what I found was that people, regardless of how strongly they feel about abortion, one way or another, have reservations about the impact that the restrictions will have on young women and about the as well as about terminating the potential child in their womb. So it would be a mistake to assume that pro-lifers don't care about the women's rights and girls' rights in this regard, or that uh, pro-choice people are not concerned about the child that they're carrying in their womb and don't have certain reservations about that. So if when you actually listen to people, we might find that they're, they're not as one-sided or extreme, that their views are more nuisance than, than we actually realize. So if you haven't heard of groups like Braver Angels, there are plenty of them, check them out. A number of groups, uh, Civic Genius, um, America Speaks, these are groups that are working to bring the country back together uh, because it's really the divisiveness, and this is part of the problem that we're having now, divisiveness is tearing the country part, apart and fueling the rise of authoritarianism. So that, that's a problem we have to face. Um, last month, we had Dr. Karen Tamirius talk to us about the power of personal stories and, and how to speak to people with whom we disagree. And you can find part one and part two of that at 
on YouTube at tinyurl.com slash democracy under fire video, or just search for the show or on my podcast. So take a listen to her. She, she has a real good strategy. And there are other groups, people teaching people how to talk to people who we disagree with. Now, let's see. So many people have powerful stories to tell about abortion. And so that's why it's important to have these personal stories because people can relate to stories and, in a way that they can't relate to reason and argument and logic and abstractions. So even I, as a man, I have a story related to abortion. So um, I grew up in the evangelical church in the 70s. My mother, who is with us today and is, is on the call, God bless her, is a committed evangelical um, who has her own nuisance point of view about abortion. Now, as a young man, I knew nothing about abortion. Um, I didn't even know my mother was pro-life or even what pro-life was. In my early years after high school, I went to community college. I took a class on interpersonal communications. And one assignment was to participate in a debate. And the professor asked me right there in front of the class, um, Richard, why, why don't you debate abortion? I said, you know, great. I mean, I have to choose some topic to debate. I just have one question. What's abortion? So I was 19 years old. I just out of high school, 18 years old, 19 years old. I had no idea what abortion was. So I went to the library to find out. So I read through book after book from both sides of the debate, you know, and still I didn't understand what abortion was. One side was yelling about their freedom to choose, their right to control their own bodies, how religious people were imposing their views on others and so forth. The other side screaming about abortion being murder and, and baby killing. But none of them actually described what an abortion was. It wasn't, they were all euphemisms. They were all abstractions. And... I had a stack of books nearly three feet tall. Still, I didn't know what abortion was. It wasn't until I read a book by a priest that described what abortion was, talked about the conception and the process of abortion in concrete terms that I finally understood what an abortion was. And I didn't necessarily agree with the, the priest's conclusions, but I... I appreciated the clear and detailed and plain language. Um, and in the debate, I would eventually debate both sides of the issue. And I um, didn't really come out with a position on abortion at that time. I was simply, it didn't affect me. And I was interested in other things. So I transferred to the University of Southern California, and I knew I had some difficulty relating to women. So I decided I would take this introductory 
the class to the study of women and men in society, which is USC's gender studies or feminist studies program. And it was taught by three participants, a gay male professor, a pro-feminist male professor, and a woman. And it had three exams of two midterms and a final. And after each exam, I had a mystical experience. I would turn my exam paper in early and I would ace all these exams. Um, but most of the people would still be taking the exam when I walking up the ramp of the lecture hall. And the first time, after the first midtime, I saw this ball of light, white light, right in front of me. And I probably exclaimed something, I don't remember, but I walked out thinking, wow, I just had a mystical experience, a, a, a experience like uh, Paul had on the road to Damascus, Paul, on the road to Damascus had been persecuting Christians. And he is actually the author of multiple books in the Bible. And there are other, many other books that are attributed to him. So, and some people say he's actually the founder of Christianity. And he had this vision where he saw this being of light appeared to him as he was on the road to Damascus. And he heard the being of, of light, which he believed was Christ, the resurrected Christ, saying, why are you persecuting me? Now, I thought, wow, that was a really great mystical experience. You come away with this sense of knowing something, but not quite knowing, being able to articulate it. And I thought, you know, I've had mystical experiences similar, not like that, but different ones before. I would have more later, but I, I didn't, this is fairly rare, very rare. So I didn't expect it to happen again, but sure enough, on the next exam, I'm leaving the exam, turn my paper in early, walking up, not thinking anything like that would happen again. I mean, how could anything like that happen again? And then boom, an even bigger ball of white light right in front of me. I must have made an exclamation of something out loud, like a whoa or wow. But I was able to gather myself and leave the class. And um, I was like, wow, I, I really knew I was on the right track, that I had, that it was important for me to take this class that was learning new things. My professors, however, were not so sanguine or so happy with, with that. They called me in, you know, especially the female professor was particularly upset. If I interrupted the exam or, inter or disrupted the exam, there would be consequences. I tried to explain to them what happened, but I don't, they didn't really believe me. So on the final exam, I'm walking out and I'm saying, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to keep my mouth closed. If this light happens again, I'm going to keep my mouth closed. I'm not going to say, let anything escape my mouth. So I'm walking up. They could be holding and then, boom, this bigger beam of light, this just, and I felt 
the air rush, the throat, the vocal aces, just to the top of the mouth. And then next thing I know, I'm smelling this acid smell and I'm looking up, there's a paramedic above me and uh, with smelling salts. And they were concerned that it was a seizure or something, but I knew that it wasn't a seizure. So they had a stretcher there. They wanted me to lay down. No, I had to get out of there. So I, I just left. But um, so at that time, I understood. I understood exactly what spirit was trying to tell me. And it was, why are you persecuting women? Why was I persecuting women? And so that's when I decided to minor in the study of women and men in society. I became a founding member of the Students Alliance for a non-sexist society. I became a feminist or pro-feminist anti-pornography activist. I became enamored with Catherine McKinnon, who is the woman who argued the sexual harassment cases and was a feminist anti-pornography author. Uh, and she developed the theory of sexual harassment. And I started a group called People Against Pornography. And eventually I would write, use all the knowledge. I would go around, speak at different universities, engage in debates and so forth. And eventually I would publish my book in law school, sort of a dissertation like thing. And so like Paul on the road to Damascus, I, I had that type of conversion experience in a women's studies class. So what did I learn minoring in the study of women and men in society? Well, the one thing I learned is that the personal is political. That means that our personal lives are not separate from politics, that politics affects our personal life. Let me explain it to you this way. Betty Friedan, around 50 years ago, wrote a book called the Feminine Mystique. That book is credited for having sparked the second wave of feminism in America. And in that book, she identified what she called the problem with no name. Now, the problem with no name was that all these women were working as homemakers not necessarily by choice, but by tradition, dissatisfied, underutilized, unhappy, and their talents and abilities wasted. So, so let's, let's understand something. What is patriarchy? Patriarchy, by definition, is father rule. What that means is men rule both nationally and in cities and politics, but also in what's the domestic spirit. Men rule over the domestic spirits. 
father rule. And in the ancient times, fathers were the leaders of tribes and they had huge families. But even now, it's a system of authority. Men on top politically, men ruling the domestic sphere in their family homes. So while we may have some right to privacy, it's not the same thing as the private sphere or the domestic sphere. There is some constitutional laws against unreasonable search and seizure. We have the right to the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So privacy is different from the public sphere. We may have some implied right to privacy in the Constitution, some level of having our integrity and invalibility that humans have inalienable rights. And so this is the basis of the doctrine of privacy. But that's not the domestic sphere. That's the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So there really is no division between the private sphere, the domestic sphere, and the public sphere politically. So what is this argument that people's personal beliefs should not affect their political decisions? You're really coming from outer space when you say that, because the only thing that does affect our our political opinions is our personal beliefs and values. There is no real separation in people's minds between their personal beliefs and values and their political beliefs and values, even their religious beliefs and values. Religion has been political from the very beginning. It was the first form of politics. That's what was the first form of politics. Nations were kings were gods uh, and sons of gods and and everyone all the nations were some form of theocracy. It's not until we came to sort of the enlightenment and individual rights, which grew out of scripture, when Paul wrote that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. This is the foundation of individualism that eventually grew out and eventually separated the church and the state. Now, the separation of the church and the state is not the separation of religion and politics. The separation of the church and states involves the institutions, and in those institutions, only the state is prohibited from acting. Churches are free to do whatever they want, except most choose to be nonprofit corporations and to be able to make their donations tax deductible. They file for a tax code status called 501c3. It's charity, nonprofit, educational institution. And that requires them to reframe from advocating for individual 
candidates for public office or opposing individual candidates for public office. It has nothing to do with social issues, justice, abortion, it has nothing to do with that. Those are social issues. The only thing that's restricted under the tax code is promoting individual candidates or opposing individual candidates for office. So churches are free to do whatever it is that they want to do. A church could decide not to register as a 501c, but instead register as a 501c4. Their contributions wouldn't be tax deductible, but they would be able to promote candidates for public office. In fact, I often tell people who complain about churches having tax-free status that the only thing that prevents them from engaging in actual political campaigns for candidates is the tax code. It's not the Constitution. To restrict the church's ability to express itself on social issues uh, would be a violation of the First Amendment. To ask people not to be able to rely on their beliefs, personal beliefs and values in making their political decisions, even their religious beliefs and values, there isn't any law that prevents that. And there's and religion really should influence our political decisions. Love our neighbor, love our enemy, care for the needy, pursue justice. These are all biblical calls for governance that is just and representative of the people. And, and, and this is a sense, and I think even progressive realize that we're missing something. We're missing something when we don't have a spiritual part of our political advocacy, social justice. That's why we engage in these quasi-religious type meditations or readings to motivate us and sustain us, and it's necessary. So religion and spirituality is a part of politics. It can't be separated from it. And truly, it is a spiritual calling to pursue justice, to want to create a better world, it, to love our neighbors, even love our enemies. So there really cannot be a separation between what people think in their heads, their beliefs and values, and their political beliefs and values. It's just not functional, and you're really coming from outer space. The only thing that does influence our political views is our personal beliefs and values. So there is no separation of religion and politics, and certainly to deny a person the right to express their personal beliefs and values on political issues would be a violation of the First Amendment. And something that we shouldn't do because we all should be spiritual about our approach to politics. We all should be loving, kind, gentle, accepting, welcoming, and but intolerant of injustice. So what is religion? I met a guy, so what is religion? I met a guy at Norm's restaurant and he saw I had this shirt and it said democracy defender on the back. And he said, I like your shirt. And then he said, 
the Republicans really got shafted. And I said, what do you mean by that? So yeah, the election was stolen. And I sort of ended up saying, well, I, you know, trying to understand where it came from, using our techniques for sharing personal stories, listening, trying to find something to agree with. And this is the approach you should take with dealing with Christians, not citing scripture, but telling your story, listening, finding points of agreement. Though well, he asked, he said, in the end, I mean, we talked a little bit about the election, you know, how the courts really try to make the right decisions in all the court cases that he lost. And, but then he said, and thank God for Jesus Christ. In other words, he's testing me, right? And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, he died for our sins. I said, yes, he died for truth, justice, and love. That's what religion is about. It's about learning to live in community, not just the church community, but the local community the, and the broader, broader community and even as a nation. So what do you do? So rather than trying to argue with Christians based on scripture or convince them with logical reason and argument, they're just going to quote their Bible, find the Bible quotes that support them and engage in that discussion at best that argument, but they're not going to change their point of, point of view. It's going to put them into a position where they're defending their point of view and more strongly attack, becoming more strongly attached to their viewpoints. So we had an earlier episode, as I mentioned, with Karen Tamirias telling us how to speak to people who disagree with us. And you can look on our prior show for that. That would be very helpful um, for you. But the most important thing is to tell your story, your abortion story. I mean, even I have an abortion story. And if you can't think of an abortion story, of course, you can tell somebody else's. Find a story you can tell about a woman who's been assaulted, you know, the future of a woman who's forced to bear children. People relate to and understand stories, but logical argument just puts people in a confrontational argumentative mode. Ask questions. Try and find out what they believe. Find points of agreement. I mean, you might say, yeah, I agree life is sacred. Very simple. Because mostly it's the relationship. People change their views because you have a relationship with them. So, and also lower, our, lower your expectations. They're not going to change only just a little bit. And that's, that's our goal. Maybe they'll become less strident, less active, less involved. Because their view may not have changed, but they're, confidence in that view as being absolutely right and their enemies as being absolutely wrong might not be as strong and so that so look for our three episodes on stop arguing make make change with karen tamarius 
Um, and you can find those on our YouTube page. Uh, just go to tinyurl.com slash democracy under fire video, or you can look for democracy under file fire or Bible study for progressives on your podcast app and listen to the audio version. And I, I also, and before that, I want to remind you about our upcoming event on September 11th at 2 p.m. Pacific time. We're having Gina Clayton Turvin, candidate for Huntington Beach City Council and a educator who served as a trustee on the Ocean View School District Governing Board of Education, is a member of the executive board of the ABC Federation of Teachers, and has spent 25 years as a classroom teacher, union leader, and elective school board trustee. She will be with us to speak about the teaching of American history and government in our schools and how we can get young people interested and involved in elections and voting. So to register for that, go to tinyurl.com slash education democracy. Thank you for listening. When you go out and talk to your Christian friends about abortion, don't argue with them. Tell them a story. And remember to find our podcast democracy under fire we've just changed the name but you can look for democracy under fire the new name of the podcast is the truth in democracy podcast and i'll see you next time